Hello and welcome to the Travelling Sisterhood of Art Historians podcast. We are Maddie, Freya, Caroline and Serena, four art historians who each week will be chatting to an expert about visual and material culture in the 18th and 19th centuries. Join us on an art historical journey as we think about how images and objects shaped our world. Hello, this episode we're talking about stone, marble and sculpture. A few months ago, Freya and I chatted to Cora Gilroy Ware, who is a lecturer in the history of art at the University of York. Cora was someone who immediately sprung to mind when we thought of doing an episode on stone, due in part because of her recent book, The Classical Body in Romantic Britain, which is very much concerned with sculpture and stone and classical modes at the turn of the 19th century. Together, we discussed her book, Neoclassicism as a Style, and issues around sculpture and race. But first, let's recap some of our own thoughts on stone and how it crops up in our work. Yeah, it was so brilliant to catch up with Cora and to hear all about her brilliant work. So for me, stone, and particularly the variety of stones available in the 18th and 19th centuries, is something that I'm thinking about a lot at the moment as part of my work on specimen tables. Now, these are tables whose tops are formed from fragments, parts and pieces of material like stones, minerals and different types of wood and were very much a ubiquitous decorative object from the 18th until the early 20th centuries and lots survive from this period. So the constituent fragments of such tables were reputedly sourced from ruins, archaeological excavations and the destruction of ancient monuments and often included examples of precious minerals like lapis lazuli and marbles like verde antico, porphyry and pietra pesina or florentine marble known for its striking resemblance to ruined landscapes. So one 1764 example which has a base possibly produced by the furniture makers Ince and Mayhew for the ninth Earl of Exeter at his home in Burley is a really useful example for thinking about how the makers of these objects use natural materials within decorative schemes. So its rectangular top is inlaid with various sorts of lava from Mount Vesuvius, which are displayed in polished discs linked by red, yellow and white looped rings and stars with a yellow marble surround. And what I really love about this table is here we have the ecological and the classical past as displayed as being linked with Vesuvius's lava flow, which was of course responsible for one of the most infamous events in classical antiquity, the destruction of Pompeii and Herculaneum, right at the center of the table and its associational resonances within the tabletop. So even in the lava's transformed state, it would still recall these powerful histories. And also what's really fascinating to me about these objects is not only how they demonstrate how stone was used to create beautiful surfaces with intricate designs formed from stunning stones and minerals, but also how natural materials like stone related to British cultural imperialism at the time. And this kind of manifests in how it was stolen, mined, plundered and transported from territories under the rule of the British Empire. So in my mind, when I think about stone and its presence in 18th and 19th century Britain, I reflect on both its aesthetic function as a sculpted and polished object, but also as a raw material, which relates to some broad global narratives at this time. I love it. And the visual description of that, that piece. Wow. I think 
what you've said as well about the kind of global narratives that surround this type of material is so interesting. And of course, stone as a material and also marble is something that's really been in the news quite recently, particularly in terms of its public role and its value within our society in relation to public monuments, particularly given the public toppling of the statue of Edward Colston on Sunday, the 7th of June in 2020 in Bristol. Colston was the deputy governor of the Royal African Company and his wealth was built up by the transatlantic slave trade. So as many of us will know already, demonstrators tipped the slave trader's statue into the harbour in Bristol last summer, really very much spurred on by the Black Lives Matter movement. And during this process of the toppling, actually a large loose piece of the stone plinth that the statue stood on broke off and remained on the ground. And apparently it was there over the next couple of days. But then a couple of days after that, this stone was apparently missing. And I think it's, it still is. And what's really interesting actually, if you look into the history of the Colston statue, is that there have actually been several previous attempts to remove it, and particularly to change the plaque um, that's on the stone plinth. And actually, a couple of years ago, there was an unauthorized plaque that was glued onto the stone plinth in protest, detailing who he was and his links to the slave trade. And this was later removed, but the resin from the glue that was attached onto the stone plinth was actually kind of left its mark. It meant that the stone was slightly discolored and it ultimately damaged the stonework. So this history of this monument and the ongoing debates over the years to remove it has become imprinted onto the materiality of the stone plinth that the statue sat on. And I think for me, what's so crucial about these ongoing discussions around public monuments, and particularly the example of the Colston statue, is that it really shows that society's values are not actually set in stone. This is such an intriguing contrast, Caroline, between the perceived permanence of stone and this mutability of statues' meanings and interpretations. So not to bring everything back to textiles, but the relationship between stone and dress has always fascinated me and really resonates with these themes of permanence and ephemerality. Stone and textiles are so haptically, materially different Stone we think of as being hard and solid and cold, while textiles are soft and flowing. Yet there's such a fascinating symbiosis, I suppose, between the two. Stone itself can also have a really major impact on textiles and on dress and on fashion. So in particular, I am thinking of the emergence of the high-waisted muslin gowns synonymous with the Regency, which owe so much to classical statues and link as well to what Cora's talking about with the neoclassical style that was so popular at the beginning of the 19th century. Some women at the time literally described themselves as wanting to look like statues, to embody those statues, to be statues come to life. While Freya, it's your physical stones that are being transported globally, Stone was also the vehicle for disseminating and fabricating ideas about how we wanted to present the human body. 
Well, I'm really interested, Freya and Caroline, in this idea of fragmentation and stone being broken apart and reassembled to create these new meanings. And I want to expand this to think a little bit about sculpture and the processes of copying and reproducing it. So, of course, in the 18th century and into the 19th century, as tourists headed out to Italy and Greece to see classical sculptures, and one of the places that people would most regularly go to was Pompeii, of course, there was a sort of industry that sprung up that made smaller replicas of these works. So about a year ago, I actually found a marble copy of a very famous sculpture by the 18th century artist Antonio Canova on a market stall. So this is a neoclassical sculpture depicting the three graces, or the daughters of Zeus, who are grouped together with their arms draped around each other's shoulders. This is probably made in the 19th century, but here it was, covered in dirt and looking very forlorn, uh, amongst other, you know, sort of bric-a-brac on the market. So I bought it, I took it home, I cleaned it up, and of course I did a little bit of research on it. When I did, I realised that actually this work by Canova has a really interesting history of being replicated and being uh, sort of repeated, and that my small version of this can be read as part of this tradition. So the original sculpture by Canova, which I believe is now in the State Hermitage Museum in St. Petersburg in Russia, was commissioned by none other than Napoleon Bonaparte's first wife, Josephine de Beauharnais. But she died before the sculpture was completed, and afterwards there was a struggle between her son, who wanted the work, and the English Duke of Bedford. And in order to sort of placate these two, these two men, Canova actually was forced to create a second version of the same piece, which Bedford bought and which is now in the V&A. So the sculpture already has this really interesting history of being copied. Uh, and then later on, we see these smaller, cheaper, more widely available copies, like the one that I found, that actually sort of operate, I guess, beyond this original cycle. They've not been made by Canova. Uh, and there are all sorts of questions that then emerge around um, what makes them valuable. Is it the fact that they're emulating these bigger original works made by skilled artists that makes them valuable or is it in the context of a more sort of commercial market the material of marble itself that's valuable and I think these questions of material value of artistry and the long and complicated history of sculpture which is fraught with all sorts of artistic and political tensions is something that came to the fore in our conversation with Cora. this episode we're excited to welcome our guest Dr Cora Gilroy Ware who is currently a lecturer in the history of art at the University of York. Cora has previously held postdoc fellowships at the Naples L'Orientale University, the Huntington Library University, the California Institute of Technology and University College London and has curated exhibitions and displays at both Tate Britain and the Huntington. So welcome Cora. Hi <laughs> thank you for having me. Today we're going to be talking to Cora about all things stone, um, prompted by some of the discussions of sculpture that form part of her monograph, The Classical Body in Romantic Britain, published in April 2020 by the Paul Mellon Centre for Studies in British Art, as well as her broader work on neoclassicism from the 18th century to the present day. So we're so pleased to have you with us for this episode, Cora. So before we get into talking about your wonderful book, I guess we should sort of set the scene a little bit. 
So to start with the very basics, what is neoclassicism in the 18th and early 19th centuries? And what exactly has it got to do with stone? So in my work, I actually avoid the term neoclassicism altogether, which I found was an essential move in really getting to grips with what artists during the late 18th and early 19th centuries were attempting to do when they turned to the archive of Greco-Roman antiquity. As art historians, we talk a lot about whether broad categories such as neoclassical or Baroque or even Victorian are actually useful and productive. And I certainly think that they can be in certain contexts, um, particularly as chronological markers. And I've obviously deployed the word romantic in this way for the title of my book. Um, but like many of these terms, the word neoclassical actually originated long after the period in question in the late 19th century as a derogatory way of marking out and actually undermining the fixation on classical antiquity among artists and designers of the Georgian period. And the first instances of this word actually apply mainly to furniture rather than fine art. So I prefer the term classicizing because this word, a gerund, an active word, gives a sense of, I think, the will, the sheer desire, the perhaps not quite achieved attempt at creating something original and progressive based on the relics of classical antiquity. And this has everything to do with stone because sculpture, the sculptural body, was at the center of this mission, both in terms of the type of ancient works that were drawn upon by contemporary artists, which were largely Greco-Roman marbles, although other forms of art such as Roman frescoes from um, Pompeii and Herculaneum, for example, were also crucial at this time. Uh, and also because in Britain, at least, contemporary sculpture is rising to become an independent, autonomous art form, an art form that um, requires certain spatial and lighting conditions to appreciate it, and it's also its own critical discourse. And from the practitioner's perspective, the art of sculpture I think is in the first half of the 19th century, it's shirking its image as a manual, laborious kind of art and becoming a higher, more noble artistic practice akin to poetry. Uh, actually, in, indeed, there's a kind of close connection that emerges at this time between marble sculpture and poetry. Um, and in London, you also had the first exhibitions devoted exclusively to contemporary sculpture. And some of the works on display at these exhibitions were plaster casts, which is another very interesting story, but many of them were stone and there is generally a kind of cult of marble that emerges in Britain at this time. That's fascinating. Thanks, Cora. I really like the idea of a cult of the cult of marble, but perhaps we'll come to that uh, in a little bit. Um, and I, know, I, I so agree about using these kind of stylistic labels and categories in these kind of problematic ways and the directions that and the misdirections that that can sometimes take us down in, as art historians. And your book, I think it's fair to say, is quite a radical departure from earlier ideas um, of classical forms uh, that we're kind of used to when talking about this period, um, which is kind of about order and restraint to the classical past. But instead, you introduce an exciting and um, new way of reading sculpture, one that is interested in looking at objects made of stone and particularly marble, as you mentioned, alongside romantic ideas of sentimentality and sensuality. And for many of us, when we think of the Romantic period, we think of poetry, like you kind of mentioned earlier, we think of Wordsworth and Keats, and maybe even when we're talking about visual arts, artists like Turner. 
so where do these classical bodies fit within the, the broader history of the Romantic period? Just quickly to stick with the question of terminology. So as I said before, I use the word romantic as a chronological marker rather than a way of designated as designating a certain style. Some scholars who, are, who remain kind of wedded to these abstract categories argue for the acknowledgement of a romantic classicism, a blending of, uh, say, formal idealism based on Greco-Roman exemplars and a more modern artistic agenda based on subjective feeling and a more realistic style. And to me, this always seemed an easy way out that obscured more than it clarified. Um, but then we have the notion that classicism and romanticism are fundamentally at odds. When I began my research, I assumed that this was a cliche and that this opposition couldn't possibly be as cut and dry as the likes of people like Kenneth Clark <laughs> argued that it was. And I found this to be true to an extent, but at the same time, it's remarkable how much the classical and the romantic were discussed during the period as opposites. Uh, most notably in the work of Friedrich Schlegel, the German philosopher, but also in British art too. For example, you have the painter Henry Howard, who's a neglected figure that I try and bring back into focus. Uh, he wrote Academy in the 1830s that the classical can be defined by grandeur and symmetry of form, beauty, grace, sublimity, and pathos. Um, while the romantic, on the other hand, implies the wild, the capricious, the strange, and the accidental. Um, and how it talks about a line of demarcation being drawn between these two approaches, something that's coming from the continent, and he's very explicit about this. Um, and you have, again, the, an the anecdote which I love of William Wordsworth, chief among the romantics, um, exclaiming that uh, Cupid and Psyche by uh, Antonio Canova, these figures were devils, um, which is an incident that to me seems to encompass almost too perfectly that sense of opposition or friction between these two perspectives. Um, actually, having said that, though, uh, Gustave Flaubert, the French writer who's also associated with romanticism to a degree, is said to have kissed uh, Canova's figure of Psyche uh, in the same sculpture, I think in the armpit, to be precise, claiming it was the best kiss he'd had in a long time. Um, so these reactions, I think, say more about the individual rather than any stylistic movement or change in taste. And John Keats was someone who eradicated um, any clear, kind of clear-cut division between classicism and romanticism. And that's one of the reasons why I wanted to use his poetry as a sort of theoretical framework for my argument. Now, in terms of where the classical body fits in, for me, it was more about how the classical body survives in an age that was increasingly inhospitable and inho inhospitable to and intolerant of uh, the ideologies that had informed the representation of such figures in the preceding area, so, uh, uh, era. So I wanted to explore how the appearance of the classical body uh, in ways that may seem negligible to those that use the term neoclassicism to describe all art that draws on Greek or Roman exemplars was forced to adapt. So the increasing importance of the sensory qualities of the stone, the material is one register of this, the way in which the classical body is forced to adapt. And what we call neoclassical encompasses just so much material. Mm -hmm. This material is it's far from uniform or complementary. Not only is it created by diverse practitioners, but there are these intense conflicts within this archive and so my book identifies and traces just one of these conflicts uh, in the context of British art specifically.
that makes sense. <laughs> it does. I, I love what you're saying about the sort of the subjectivity of a you know, potentially personal encounter with a sculpture as opposed to a sort of it's a more generic school of thought um, that's been developed afterwards. And thinking more specifically about the materiality of the objects that you work on, I wonder if you wanted to say something a little more about the kinds of stone. I mean, we've talked about marble, but were there any other sort of types of stone that were being used in sculpture? And were there sort of any, not just artistic, but sort of political or geographical or economic connotations that those stones carried that viewers at the time and maybe in the century afterwards would have been able to read that maybe if we look at a work like that today we don't necessarily register immediately. I think I mean this isn't something that I talk about in my book but the thing that immediately comes to mind um, is a sculpture that I've been thinking about recently um, by an American artist called Peter Stevenson of the Wounded Indian which is um, was exhibited as the first sculpture ever to be made of American marble, um, oh, wow. which was a really sort of important, um, seemed to be the most important aspect of the sculpture. And it's a really troubling work for lots of reasons. Um, but it's interesting because um, there, it had taken um, up until this point to start using American marble because um, railway networks didn't exist that were capable of carrying the stone to artists who needed to use it. So, that in particular is something that I've been thinking about recently. But in terms of the book, most of the sculptures that I speak about uh, are made from marble imported from Carrara in Tuscany. Um, although, as I suggested earlier, plaster during the period is gaining legitimacy as a material for exhibited sculpture, which carries with it all sorts of interesting implications in terms of um, accessibility. Um, at the start of the period covered in my book, the question of the material, the materiality of sculpture is actually less important than it becomes later on. So in the book, I talk about how George Cumberland, who is a politically radical novelist and rigorously classicizing artist, as well as patron of the arts, um, he rails against sculptors who get hung up on the question of the material. And he calls it a very capricious and childish tendency and encourages artists to focus on design, in particular, the, the contour and the outline of their figures. And we see this in um, John Flaxman's sculptures too, which reveal a preoccupation with outline, which is then articulated um, most clearly in his famous outline illustrations. So outline design as opposed to surface or finish. But later on, the sensory and kind of ocular qualities of the material acquire an overarching significance. And a symptom of this, um, one that I love, is uh, the scientist Humphrey Davy in 1819, trying to figure out if the spots and veins, the so-called flaws in marble can be removed using uh, certain chemical processes. Um, and we also see this shift manifested in the work of John Gibson and his experimentation with polychromy um, following on from his mentor Canova who'd really pioneered these sorts of um, techniques. Uh, but also Gibson was actually very much invested in the importance of design and contour as well. So he kind of brings it all together. That's so interesting, Cora, um, particularly these ideas or issues around perceived imperfections in marble and how we might think about that in terms of whiteness and the political implications of this material. And of course, sculpture, often in the form of classical monuments, has been in the news a lot recently as a cultural flashpoint, especially during the height of the Black Lives Matter protests in 2020. 
And I know that your next book project focuses on engagements with the Greco-Roman form amongst artists of colour, particularly those of African and Indigenous American descent from the 19th century through to the present day. So I wonder if you might talk a little more about the relationship between sculpture and race in your work. Yeah, I mean, there's two different things. There's the Black Lives Matter stuff and then there's the new project and they're definitely not connected. And I think I wouldn't want to sort of make just race the umbrella for talking about all of these um, very different and um, in some ways sort of unrelated things. I mean, the discourse around the sort of current anti-racist activism and statuary is very complex. And personally, I don't feel that it has been sufficiently developed beyond the sort of initial rush of seeing the Edward Colston statue come down in the summer. And I really hope that people keep the conversation going in a productive and nuanced way. It actually struck me that the Colston statue is such an awful work of art, such a bad piece of sculpture, that in a way its removal didn't actually provide the best opportunity to talk about what we do with monuments to such figures, how we present them and the role that they serve going forward. Um, in an article I wrote about Clara Walker's uh, installation at Tate Modern Fonds Americanas, I discussed the idea of profanation, building on the um, work of Giorgio Agamben, the philosopher who I really like, profanation being the act of stripping an object of its infallible sanctified status and bringing it into the people's hands, essentially. Um, this, this act of profanation as an alternative to uh, destruction. And I talked about the artist Hugh Locke and his draping of um, monumental statuary and various items from um, the Global South. Um, having said that, part of me is curious about what kind of country this would be and what kind of future this country would have if all the monuments to slave-owning individuals were just permanently destroyed. Part of me is very curious about what would happen, mm -hmm. um, the outcome. But my new project looks at classicism in the hands of artists, as you say, from marginalised backgrounds. So marginalised um, in terms of race, gender and class, and most of them are black women. African-American women, um, to be precise. So I'd already started this research and, and I knew that I wanted to sort of continue my thinking about neglected chapters in the sort of history of visual classicism, but sort of take it into a different context. Um, when I came across an essay from actually from 1926 uh, entitled Criteria of Negro Art by the African-American critic and activist W.E.B. Uh, du Bois. In this article, which was actually a talk given um, to an audience consisting of other activists who were also fighting for equality as Du Bois was. Um, the author, he attempts to define beauty and it's very interesting because on a list of conventionally beautiful things, he cites the black and velvet room where on a throne rests an old and yellowing marble, the broken curves of the Venus de Milo. And so I was struck by the distinctiveness of this reference to a canonical, canonical work of ancient sculpture. He, was, he doesn't praise the figure itself, kind of anthropomorphizing it as countless other critics, uh, both European and American had done before him, you know, turning it into a beautiful body, of a beautiful woman. Instead, he references the sculpture as an inanimate work of stone, embracing its fragmentary condition and implicitly time-worn surface, as well as the actual space in which the work is displayed, a dark, very atmospheric, perfectly lit room. So although it describes a very familiar work of art, a very familiar figure, um, 
Du Bois's image, I think, casts, well, to me, it casts a, an alternative light on the allure of such a figure and such a body, uh, one that runs counter to the dominant ideas around the sort of fortunes of classicism in the early 20th century when it's being sort of um, done away with by, you know, avant-garde uh, practices. And so this then connected with the research that I was already doing on Mary Edmonia Lewis and Augusta Savage and Summer Burke, as well as Cara Walker. So that's, that's the next project. Um, it's sort of like, because it's never really been written about before, there's a lot of material. So I'm just <laughs> kind of figuring out what the um, chapters are going to be. But um, quite a few people have said that the second book's always easier. So <laughs> It's so fascinating to hear you talk about the kind of the neglected chapters in the histories of visual classicism. I thought that was a really uh, wonderful expression. It seems to me something that's so important to kind of reframe given the co-option of neoclassicism by the far right um, more recently. So I think that this just only uh, enriches our understanding of that part of our, our, our history. Yeah, so we have reached the point of the podcast where we ask our guests to bring along an object or an artwork of particular interest. So Cora, can you describe for us what object you've brought and maybe say uh, something about why it's so special to you? And I know you've brought a couple of sculptors with you. Um, and for our listeners, as usual, we'll be putting up a couple of images of Cora's choices over on our Instagram and Twitter accounts. I wanted to just talk about a sort of special experience that I had in the Louvre actually very early on in my doctoral studies after I received um, just a small scholarship from Tate to carry out research um, in Paris and the whole trip really set the tone for my PhD as a whole um, and was really invaluable and I learned a lot from that vast collection and its display. Um, I'd never been to the Louvre before uh, so it's completely by chance that I discovered the Salle du Manège which is an area of the museum built in the mid-19th century under Napoleon III for imperial equestrian events. Um, I think later on in the 1920s, it was used as a public reception area. I think it remained um, as such until almost the 1990s, around, I think, 89, I think, when it became um, a space for exhibiting uh, objects that foreground the continuity between ancient and modern sculpture. So it was kind of like a big, I don't know if you guys have been there, but it's like a big corridor um, and its position within the museum makes it operate kind of like the connective tissue mm -hmm. between the displays of post-antique sculpture and the Greek, Etruscan and um, Roman antiquities department. And so what I found, I found the whole interior architecture of the Louvre completely fascinating, especially the parts that were added on in the um, 19th century. And the ceiling of this space has a, has a vault of brick and stone that looks almost like a quilt. It has these geometric blocks with carved horse heads and other details relating to the original function of the space. Um, so anyway, <laughs> this is all to set the scene for what I encountered when I found myself here for the first time. So the works that serve this connective function between ancient and com comparatively modern, um, they're mostly ancient Roman sculptures some of them copies of Greek works from various important collections that had arrived at the Louvre at various points in time. So uh, works from the Borghese collection, the collection of the 17th century cardinals, uh, Richelieu and Mazarin, and uh, Cardinal Albani in the 18th century. But all these antique works were heavily restored around the time in which the collections were formed. And I mean, really creatively restored with modern parts added on in different materials, different types of stone, um, kind of similar to the sculptures of uh, Charles Cordier made during the 17th century. 
so for example, and this is the, the, the first work I wanted to talk about, there's this, um, this life-size statue from the Borghese collection known as the Old Fisherman. And it's obviously a male figure, as the title suggests, not, not a god and not a semi-divine being, but an individual man um, as, you know, emerged as a genre, I think, in the Hellenistic period, shown naked, slightly crouching, gazing upward with his hands gesturing as if pleading for something from above. So this work is a Roman second century copy of a Hellenistic original that was found in Rome and first recorded in the late 16th century. So the sculpture is made of black marble with these white inlaid enamel eyes, which is already striking enough. But when the face and parts of the arms were restored, uh, that, that buttery alabaster cloth was added around the figure's waist, which sort of boldly interrupts that black marble and separates this figure into two halves. And what's even more arresting is the fact that the figure was placed inside this basin uh, made of um, violet breccia, another type of stone, with the surface, you can't really see from this picture, but the surface of the um, basin is reddened, giving the illusion that the fisherman is standing in a pool of blood. So this recasts the figure as a representation of a dying Seneca, the Roman author who committed suicide in the bath. And Rubens famously uh, based his painting of the dying Seneca on this very sculpture. And so what's interesting to me about this approach to restoration and this particular sculpture is it's hybridity, it's temporal and material integration that produces wholeness or an illusion of wholeness even before you know about their composite nature, sculptures like these appear, I think, quite uncanny, even more uncanny than heavily restored sculptures uh, from a single type or color of stone. Um, I think they also provide fascinating insight into the changing attitudes toward restoration and the fragmented body over time. So that's the first work, which I've just, well, I'll never forget my first encounter with with all of these hybrid sculptures. That's such an interesting work, Cora. Um, it's so weird, isn't it? <laughs> kind of to look at, it's, it's just so kind of out of our normal kind of frames of reference for classical sculpture, I think. But Yeah, and when you see that kind of the blood red surface, um, it's particularly disturbing and interesting. So this is the other work in the Salle du Manège, um, which is, it's actually technically made from one type and color of stone. It's a seated alabaster figure from the Albani collection, um, which is now known as Horus, the Egyptian god of the sky. Um, so the lower part of the sculpture is ancient Egyptian and was originally um, a depiction of Ramses II, the pharaoh, dating I think from 1250 BC, that was brought to Rome during the imperial era. Uh, where it was then refashioned into a sculpture of Antinous, Emperor Hadrian's lover. But then in the 18th century, the upper part of the figure was totally remade. I think probably um, in the workshop of the sculptor Bartolomeo Cavaceppi, who's um, quite an important figure in, in sort of late 18th century Rome. Um, so again, you have these, these layers that visualize the continuity and also the discontinuity between different time periods in terms of faith as well as style um, and which I think comes across quite strikingly even when different colors of stone aren't contrasted as is the case uh, with this work and actually um, I don't we don't have an image of it but in the same room in the Louvre there's a lot of porphyry which I think is just so beautiful mm -hmm. kind of the color of stewed plums or berries 
Um, it's absolutely gorgeous. And there's this large second century Roman bust of the goddess Minerva from the Mazafan collection. And it has those beautiful depo tiny deposits of crystals that stand out against the rich purple. So I think if I had a favorite stone, I would maybe choose that one. Um, but when you asked me about my, uh, an object I wanted to talk about, this display within the Louvre came to mind because of those different integrations of, of colors and, and, um, and different types of stone seen in, in the space. And I just, I found this approach fascinating, especially as the question of polychromy in terms of sculpture is something that we tend to associate chiefly, I think, with the second half of the 19th century. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I think these works are also, yeah, like they don't really sort of jar with lots of our assumptions and understandings of um, what constitutes a great, great work, work of art, an authentic work of art, but also our sort of consideration of colour in relation to sculpture. Yeah, thanks. This is so fascinating, Cora. I particularly like that you picked a kind of suite of objects that fit in reference to your kind of personal experiences as well. It's I love kind of hearing origin stories of how you became interested in things. So it, it's a really fascinating story. And I, I I haven't visited this part of the Louvre, so I think I will have to add it on my list. Again, it really speaks to the kind of art that's on display there because it's like they don't really know what to do with it. So they sort of put mm -hmm. all hybrid works together in this um like I said, it's kind of like a corridor area. Um, kind of an assemblage of weird assembled, assembled works. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And there's actually not that much written about the work, so they're still quite mysterious as well. And I, I wonder if they've been sort of, um, people have avoided working on them because they sort of go against, you know, our values of sort of authenticity and um, the single origin of the work of art. Um, mm -hmm. And also, we, 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 in our times, we come to value the fragment. Um, but obviously these works are based on a, an aversion to the fragments and mm -hmm. they're also sort of foreign to us as well. You've been listening to the Travelling Sisterhood of Art Historians podcast. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter and Instagram and to subscribe.